This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. 5 p.m. the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Now, equities in Europe broadly positive today. More mixed over in the United States, Alex. We're digesting the Bank of Canada, uh, which only raised by 50 basis points despite expectations of 75. And we've also had really disappointing earnings out from Alphabet. Google, uh, and also Microsoft overnight, which has really weighed uh, on the tech sector on your side of the pond. Uh, yep. We're also the well off the lows, though. It, it's, yep. it is really quite interesting. When you get these pretty bad numbers, even those that were expecting bad numbers from Microsoft and Google were still surprised by how negative they were. And yet you're looking at the Nasdaq 100 really pairing its losses down by only half a percent. And you have to wonder, does that mean that the bad news was in part baked in? Or are, are we really in a buy the dip kind of world? I mean, it really does boggle the mind, to be honest. Central banks, as I say, also front and centre. The Bank of Canada was expected to go 75 basis points. I hiked by 75 basis points today. Tiff Macklin, the governor there, has decided to only go by 50. He's worried clearly about mm-hmm. a recessionary story developing. You've also got the housing market under pressure. It's interesting. The dollar is under pressure today more broadly. The US dollar, so the cable rate, the British pound trading at 116. We're back at 116. We were at 103 the other day. The euro's north of parity. We're ahead of the ECB rate decision tomorrow. It is expected to deliver 75. But the dollar certainly taking a big tumble here. Yeah, and you know, what What I also thought was quite interesting, and I understand that the Bank of Canada in some ways is different because the housing market But they specifically said there's no generalized decline in price pressures, but rate hikes are beginning to weigh on growth. And it raises the question, does the Bank of Canada get to the terminal rate the market expects, or do we have to lower it? Or do they just get to the terminal rate, but a little bit slower than we thought? Those are very different outcomes. Yeah, and that's what everybody's trying to figure out about the Fed right now as well. Mm-hmm. That That is the huge challenge. And to a certain extent, the Bank of England. We'll talk more about the bank uh, in a few minutes' time. Before we do that, let's get some headlines with Charlie Powell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Prime Minister Sunak has delayed an economic strategy announcement planned for Monday until November 17th as he sought more time to make the, quote, right decisions on managing the British economy. The delay from October 31st was announced in a readout of today's cabinet meeting issued by Sunak's office. The government also upgraded the status of the program from a medium-term fiscal plan to an autumn statement, a form of interim mini-budget. Sources say Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt is seeking to fill a fiscal shortfall of £35 billion when he sets out the government's tax and spending plans next month. London's Heathrow Airport says businesses at the hub need to embark on a massive hiring spree to rebuild depleted staffing ranks that contributed to a chaotic travel season across much of Europe this past summer, even as passenger numbers will need at least until the middle of the decade to return to pre-pandemic levels. According to CEO John Holland Kay, Heathrow served 81 million passengers in 2019. He says the circumstances to allow for that kind of level, quote, are unlikely to return until 2025 or even 2026. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Charlie will be back in around 30 minutes' time. He will continue to keep us updated 
on all the latest headlines. But as Charlie was mentioning just then, uh, we had today a statement not only from the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, but also the new Prime Minister. Speaking in his first PMQ's Prime Minister's questions uh, in the House, he confirmed what many had suspected, that we were going to see a delay from October the 31st to the 17th of November uh, for this big fiscal statement. Mr Speaker, the Chancellor will set out our plans in the autumn statement shortly, but this is the government that put in place plans which will remain to significantly increase capital expenditure, and even though difficult decisions do need to be made, I think the country can rest assured that we will continue to invest in our future productivity and indeed invest in our public services like the NHS. The Prime Minister speaking in the House of Commons a little bit earlier on. So let's break this down from an economic point of view and also from a political point of view. Joining us now in the studio, Bloomberg uh, UK political reporter, Joe Mays. Joe's, Joe, it is logical in so many ways for the governments to, to have delayed this. A, the optics look terrible having it on Halloween, uh, but moving it to the 17th just, just allows the OBR to maybe plug in some more positive numbers. Oh, definitely so. And we know that UK government borrowing costs have abated in recent days thanks to that action by Chancellor Hunt, you know, junking much of the trust plan. And that favourable market reaction will help the government in terms of those forecasts that the OBR is creating. Hunt himself was today saying we need those OBR forecasts to be as accurate as possible, giving the most kind of reasonable projections for growth. And yes, that certainly does help them. And certainly on the politics, you know, Rishi Sunak comes as Prime Minister yesterday. He'll want to sit down with his new ministers, new secretaries of state and make these very tricky political decisions about spending cuts and it helps to have time just to do that so joe just quickly jeremy hunt and rishi sunak what's the relationship between the two of them like how how good are these conversations going to be before he goes to his other ministers and says hey guys we got to cut some money here well, the key thing is that they're on the same page economically, insofar as both of them are believers in fiscal conservatism. And you know, Jeremy Hunt also ran for Conservative leader in the summer, but dropped out very early. And he endorsed Rishi Sunak. And Rishi Sunak would very much agree with everything he's done. Indeed, when Jeremy Hunt junked Truss's economic plans in their entirety, he was basically doing what Rishi Sunak himself would have done. So there is certainly a lot of alignment between the two of them. And I guess now it's just about how those discussions go in the next few days. I mean, officials close to them were saying to me today, they still need to just sit down and have a good chat about this stuff you know they haven't had much time at all to do that and that's what they're gonna do now what did you make of sunak's first pmqs i i kind of watched it and thought wow this guy looks he looks organized he looks like he's prepared he basically had everything ready for keir starmer's questions it was a polished performance bar low yeah. guys though i mean considering the no, last I, I, okay but but we'll take that i he he, he talks about stability he talks about uh, about wanting to put the government back on track I would be quite nervous if I was the Labour Party after today. Yeah, at no point do you look ruffled. And like you say, whenever Starmer had a question, even the tricky ones about, for example, the reappointment of Sweller Braveman as Home Secretary, he kind of had an answer prepared, pivoted quite quickly, and was having his Tory benches behind him, you know, kind of cheering a lot and, and really giving him you know, lots of support. And certainly compared to Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, it was, a, it was a very assured performance. And I think Labour has become comfortable in recent weeks with this big polling lead over the Tories, but I think they're sitting a little more uncomfortably now, knowing that they have a leader now, uh, uh, an opponent who mm -hmm. certainly has a, a better professionalism, it seems, and kind of basic competency. Yeah, yeah the basics, basically, uh, can communicate with words. Um, so when you have Rishi Sunak going over to all his different cabinet members and talking to them, what do you think that conversation is going to be in terms of you're going to have to cut your budget by this much? Like, where do you think those conversations are going to fall most heavily? 
Yeah, so what he has to be careful with is not leading to big cuts to frontline public services. So, for example, in the NHS, that would be very politically toxic to do that. So he'll be trying to work out which of his departments he can slash with with kind of minimal political pain. So whether that's kind of perhaps reducing the foreign aid budget, which is something that the Tories have done in the past, or indeed things like the Justice Department. There are some bloated departmental budgets where he'll look to cut those too. And uh, he has decisions like on welfare payments, for example. Does he raise those in line with inflation or the lower number of earnings. So he has lots of politically tricky decisions. It'll be about minimising political pain. What do we think he's going to look like, act like, as he steps onto the international stage? This is, this is like, the, the domestic stuff in some ways he's very comfortable with. I've yet to see him kind of fulfil that, that other kind of sort of mandate of speaking to the European Union, speaking to the leaders there, going to summits. What did we learn today that may be useful in in giving us a guide? I think we have to think of Sunak as more of a pragmatist, effectively, less uh, less of an ideologue than Truss or indeed even Boris Johnson. You know, one of his first calls was to the first minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, which Liz Truss didn't do. And indeed, he's spoken with Macron, spoken with Biden. And I think that, yeah, on the on the world stage, you'll see perhaps more realism from the UK, uh, a desire to... Seek agreement, I think, especially with the EU, despite Rishi Sunak's Brexit background. Northern Ireland? Northern Ireland. I mean, he has made all the right noises to the Tory right to get to the position he's in now. But I can't see Rishi Sunak being in the mood for sparking a trade war with the EU. And indeed, when he was Chancellor, I think he was always more on the dovish side of that argument, not wanting to to kind of stoke the flames with with excessive, aggressive action on Northern Ireland protocols. So I think expect more realism, a kind of emollient attitude towards uh, foreign relations. Joe, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Bluebooks Joe May is joining us on the politics uh, as they develop today. Let's talk about the economics uh, as they developed as well today. In some ways, the shifting of the uh, the fiscal statement from the 31st to the 17th uh, is, is a bit of a challenge for the Bank of England, which, remember, will now have to make its policy decision without knowing the full contours uh, of what that statement is going to look like. Joining us now to discuss these to discuss this uh, is Bluebooks Reid Lambert. Reid, how much more difficult did the bank's decisions uh, and and its thought process become today? Well, somewhat, a little. I mean, uh, one of the newspapers says they'll be flying blind in the next rate decision, but that's not quite exactly right. You know, we know quite a lot about what the government is going to do from the statement <clears throat> that Jeremy Hunt put out a week ago, basically backtracking on the Liz Truss uh, package. So, And the Bank of England works off announced government policy, so it'll just take that into account. So what does it have to look at? Liz Truss had a big stimulus penciled in. Most of that has been backtracked, but not everything. There's still a roughly £20 billion stimulus that is still penciled into the public finances that the Bank of England will take account for. Mm -hmm. They're also looking at other factors. You know, since August, when they made their last outlook of energy prices have gone down in markets but the way they calculate things they've gone up in the near term and down in the far term Mm -hmm. and the net balance is energy prices are a little bit stronger than they were in august so that's an upward pressure on inflation and also the pound is weakened so that's a up arrow as well so, Reid, money markets, though, are looking at about less than 150 basis point hikes over the next two meetings, first time in a month. Do you think that that's the appropriate kind of pricing? Well, yeah, they've sort of clawed back the 
really alarming levels of interest rates they were looking at right after the mini budget. Of At one point, they were pricing in a full two percentage point hike in November alone, and then more in December. So now the money markets are pricing in 75 basis points for next week. The discussion is really between 50 and 75 basis points for economists. And a little bit more in December, we're not on those crisis levels that were there before. And basically, by removing trust and removing the package that so alarmed many investors, you've removed the risk premium that was in there. Do you think it makes it the, the Bank of Canada just went 50 basis points, the hike? The market was expecting 75. Do you think that allows other central banks a little bit more flexibility in their thinking? Well, I think the Bank of England is is not going to look to Canada for its policy. It's going to focus really on its target, which is keeping inflation under control. Inflation is back at a 40-year high, back in double digits. And it's really alarmed about that. Inflation is five times the target. So Mm -hmm. they will move to meet that target regardless of what the Canadians are doing. Well, sure. I I don't mean that necessarily they're going to do what the Bank of Canada is doing, but the idea that even though inflation isn't under control, the economic picture becomes dire or heavy enough that they have to sort of rethink how quickly they can normalize. Yeah, the the bank is certainly thinking about that. In fact, last week we had comments from Deputy Governor Ben Broadbent saying money markets had really baked in too many rate hikes. And if you went with the sort of rate hikes that the money markets were expecting, you'd have a huge, sharp recession. So there's a balance out there, and they're trying to get that right. Um, The signs that we're getting are that the money market is a little too optimistic, a little too hawkish about where rates are going. Uh, but they're certainly still going up. How how do we think about the balance now between fiscal and monetary? H- how do you think these two are going to work together? Um, clearly, it looks like Jeremy Hunt uh, and, and his boss, um, Rishi Sunak, are, are likely to put downward pressure on budgets. How easy is it to work out kind of what that means? Is it possible to translate that into kind of a monetary policy tightening effect, as it were? It's difficult to do that, and we'll know a lot more when we get the the budget statement on November 17th. That'll come with all sorts of economic forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility, an outlook for public finances, a new remit for the Debt Management Office to sell gilts. You know, it's all those factors that you really need to figure out what that what the fiscal measures do for the economy. And this is one of the things that so unsettled the markets about Truss's September 23 statement is it didn't come with any of those elements. It was just a package of tax cuts and sweeties for the economy without any sense how much mm-hmm. it will cost or how you pay for it over time. Mm-hmm. Um, Reed, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Reed Landberg, uh, who heads up the economy team for Bloomberg. Thank you so much for joining us. And that really also sets the stage for what the ECB is going to have to contend with tomorrow, inflation, but also the economic picture, um, and some tweaks that they're going to have to look at in order to not give excessive profits to banks. So we're going to kind of break all of that down uh, in the next segment. You'll listen to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB, Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
compare the development of the um, euro towards uh, the US dollar, you see a certain decline. And uh, therefore, that might also, uh, in the end, um, of course, make imports more expensive and import inflation. So I think the ECB has all these things in mind. It acts pretty much in line with what other central banks are currently doing. Um, in the end, it is deciding independently. Um, I think governments shouldn't give too detailed advice to the ECB. But I cannot see that the ECB is doing something quite unusual compared to its peers uh, currently in the current situation. That was the German Deputy Finance Minister, Florian Tonka, speaking to Alex and I in the last hour. Um, talking about the ECB, talking about what the ECB, the European Central Bank, needs to, to think about and do next. This, as other European leaders, including the new Italian Prime Minister, Giorgio Maloney, begin to push back against the ECB's aggressive rate hiking uh, cycle. I say aggressive, it's, it's raising faster than it's ever done before. Um, we're expecting 75 basis points tomorrow. She says, and the French president has also indicated concern about this as well, that the ECB is trying to tackle a supply-side shock by raising rates in a way that will be more consistent with tackling a demand shock, similar to the one that the Fed uh, is is dealing with right now. Nevertheless, we are anticipating that we, we will see a 75 basis point hike tomorrow from the European Central Bank. Bloomberg's Eurozone economy reporter Alexander Weber joining us now to discuss this. Alexander, do you think the ECB is going to be aware, is going to be listening to some of the commentary it's beginning to get from European political readers, leaders about the, about the rate at which it's moving and whether or not rate hikes are the right tool right now? It's certainly, um, it will be aware of those comments for sure. Um, it's, a, it's a very different question um, how they're going to react. And, I mean, it's unlikely to have a, an immediate impact on the ECB or even even further down the line, it would just be um, a very bad signal for or a very bad look for the ECB to, to react to such um, comments from Italy and France. Um, that's mm -hmm. why we expect we, we expect the ECB to keep hiking uh, nevertheless, as you, as you already mentioned. Yeah. But so responding directly to it is, is one thing, but in theory, Maloney really gets at the problem. It is a supply-side problem. ECB cannot fix supply-side issues, full stop. How do you think that they're going to address No doubt they're going to get questions about that. How do you think they're going to address it and walk around that? That's true, but remember that interest rates are still at 0.75%. That's still very low and below a level that um, ECB policymakers have said it's neutral. So they, they are also aware of the challenges they're facing given that this is a supply shock. But at the same time, with inflation running at 10%, it, there's no reason to remain, um, to keep interest rates at a level that stimulates the economy. That's been their reasoning. And they need to keep an eye on second round effects like rising wages and rising inflation expectations. That's why they say there's still a case to raise interest rates. So we get 75 basis points tomorrow, three quarters of 1% in terms of the hike that we're going to see. Then what? What is the market pricing after that? So we're probably going to see um, a, a slowdown after that um, because we are getting closer to um, the final level or the terminal rate where the ECB is going to end up. And also because the economy is probably going to be contracting when policymakers next meet in December. So the trade-offs between hiking and keeping the economy um, 
uh, alive are going to be more apparent. Um, so economists we polled are predicting a slowdown to 50 basis points in December and then a further slowdown to 25 in February. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, the other part that I'm watching for tomorrow is what they're going to do to tweak um, tiering. So they basically have to stop money market rates from falling. There's just a ton of demand for collateral and there's not enough supply, right? How, what's the easiest, most efficient way for them to do that? Um, I don't think there are easy options. <laughs> That's okay, a bit fair of enough. Problem what's the option they can <laughs> that use? Are facing. So there are several. Um, the one um, that has emerged as a, maybe a bit of a favorite is that um, that the ECB could retroactively change the terms of the long-term loans that it granted to banks during the pandemic. Those terms were very, very favorable. And um, now we're in a situation that where banks can just park the money back at the ECB and um, earn a sizable profit just through this arbitrage. So retroactively changing terms is an option that's on the table. Of course, banks are going to say it hurts the ECB's credibility. Um, the ECB probably expects to end up in court if it does that. Um, the other option would be a um, reverse tiering system. The, the advantage maybe would be that if such a system was already in place when interest rates were negative and uh, the ECB wanted to shield banks from the negative effect at that time. Um, so it would just work in an opposite way. However, it could um, hurt the ECB's fight against inflation because it would depress money market rates. Uh, so it's a very complex topic legally, um, technically. It's there are many many things to consider, but um, it's we and a decision tomorrow looks uh, likely. Alexander, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate the time. Alexander Weber joining us ahead of the ECB decision tomorrow. We will, of course, bring you the press conference uh, with Christine Lagarde, the president of the ECB, live and in full uh, as we listen to her explaining, Alex, what I think is going to be an increasingly uh, difficult set of decisions for Mm -hmm. the ECB. I thought, just going back to the Bank of Canada, it's decided that it only wants to go 50 this time round. I wonder if we're going to get just a little bit more volatility. Central banks have been charging fairly hard of late. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we're going to see a little bit more variability yeah. and a little bit more kind of difficulty for them as they continue this process. And and many who say that there may be an opportunity to buy European equities, they go to the fact that the ECB is going to be quicker to pivot than the Fed because the ECB is just not going to be able to push as hard as the Fed is going to be able to do. Um, so we'll see it, it, what, A, constitutes a pivot, and B, what that pivot might look like, and C, when we might get that pivot. Um, but see, we're still talking pivot. That's the thing. I feel like until we stop talking pivots, yep. you're not going to be able to get some kind of true, meaningful uh, capitulation. Anyway, um, speaking of European companies, we got a ton of bank earnings uh, out uh, over the last 24 hours. We have Credit Suisse tomorrow. We're going to set it all up for you and bring you those details. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in the UK. Let's get a quick check in here on U.S. markets. Um, So it's been quite a little ride here. you got the S&P now up three-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq only down four-tenths of one percent. you got new home sales coming in down 10% month-on-month in September. Wasn't as bad as it could have been, but still not great. Uh, You also had uh, Microsoft numbers not good, Google. Google numbers not good, Texas Instruments warning. I mean, the news was pretty bad, yet we turned around anyway. You could make the
the argument it was the Bank of Canada. Uh, you did see yields hit the low of the session all across the curve after the Bank of Canada came out with that dovish a 50 basis point uh, rate hike. That's a quick snapshot here of where we are in U.S. markets. Now let's get some more headlines with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much. And here's what's going on. TikTok is in talks to lease a new London office a block away from its current U.K. headquarters as the social media giant continues to expand rapidly despite political tensions between Britain and China. The company's owned by Beijing-based ByteDance. It's said to be negotiating a lease for the Verdant development at 150 Aldersgate Street near the Farringdon District. The video sharing platform wants to rent the entire 11-story development, according to those sources. The new UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has delayed an economic strategy planned for Monday until November 17th, as he seeks more time to make, quote, the right decisions on managing the UK economy. Sunak, meanwhile, will restore a ban on shale gas fracking, pulling back a controversial short-lived plan by his predecessor Liz Truss on his first full day in the top job. Surging American tuition costs have more American parents sending their children to college in Europe as they look to save money on higher education. What was once a niche opportunity for wealthy American families looking to add some flair to their kids' resumes is now becoming increasingly common as tuition and fees climb in the United States. In France, the number of American students surged 50% in the 2021-22 school year compared to the previous year. There was a 16% gain in the Netherlands, while the UK saw a 28% surge in applicants this year compared to 2020. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Very interesting. I did not know that. I guess then I have to speak French if I went to school there, right? Yeah, my, my French is Absolutely not a problem. Oh, this guy. But this but guy. I gotta tell you, did you do any time in Europe as a college student? No, I did not. I was a theater person. I was a theater major. They discouraged that. Uh, on the other hand, I think fans of William Shakespeare might take issue with that, perhaps. Yeah, in London, but no. I went to really hoity-toity theater school that ah. they were like, well, our program is so fabulous that you can't sort of miss anything because if you miss something, it won't be as good. Yeah, you know, you know, you know the type. Exactly. You know and I'm type. betting Guy Johnson wishes he spent time in New York or in the United States while in college. Yeah, I, 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 I don't want to do time in Europe. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> Doesn't want to do time in Europe. All right, fair enough. Uh, doing time obviously means going to prison. Um, Whoa. So <laughs> that went weird and dark. Charlie, yeah, thanks. We were having a good convo, and you just went weird. Um, all right, Charlie Pellet, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay, so in the markets, we were talking about what happened uh, with tech stocks. On the flip side, you had European banks starting to trickle in for earnings, and they did pretty well. Um, Deutsche Bank, for example, yes, they have higher costs, but their uh, trading revenue was amazing. Um, their investment banking revenue fees, like everybody else, uh, was really disappointing. They also got hit on some leverage loans. Um, Barclays also got hit on leverage loan and financing. Um, they did set aside a nice chunk of change for the third quarter, uh, triple the amount that they did a year earlier to cover losses if consumers and businesses fall behind on loans, but they didn't see any big clouds uh, ready to break anytime soon. Um, at the same time, you have the uh, for Deutsche Bank, the CEO Christian Saving is sort of in the final months of a turnaround uh, that started years and years ago. That's sort of our lead into Credit Suisse in just a moment. Um, and we spoke to the CFO James von Moltke earlier on Bloomberg, and here's part of his conversation with Danny Berger. What we're focused on is having a portfolio of businesses that can sort of create some earnings stability throughout the cycle. And you're seeing that now with very strong FIC and relatively weak or very weak origination advisory. I think that will sort of 
change again or there'll be a rotation in 2023 as the as volatility begins to stabilize you know the markets now i think have a clearer view of terminal rates for interest um, and uh, you know uh, uh, i think there'll be a a settling once once we have visibility into the path of, of both interest rates and the economy. So is that deal flow then comes back 2020? And I think at that point the deal flow begins to come back. In a sense, micro macro shifting back to micro at a point in time, at which point origination advisory and and for example the credit business mm. within thick markets would likely start to come when, back. When do you see that happening? When in 2023? If if you had if I had to guess it would be the second half of next year. So I okay. think there's still still some time to go on on this more volatile environment. As you say, it's important as well that the, the businesses that we have that have large deposit books and who are based on growing loans, so, so corporate bank and mm -hmm. private bank, they're now seeing real momentum, benefiting from interest rates, but also client activity. But when it comes to those riskier loans, the leveraged loans, is now the time, until the environment normalizes, to get low to the ground, to cut back on risk? Well, look, our commitment pipeline at this point is down to only about $2 billion, and we've, we think we've marked that now appropriately to the, to the current conditions. It's a feature of the leveraged debt capital markets that, that there'll be a backup every once in a while when financial market conditions change. The banks work through their pipelines, and then as investors and also issuers find sort of a more accommodative environment and more predictability in terms of pricing, the market reopens. And you're, you're beginning to see that already yeah. in the third quarter. James Wamoka speaking a little bit earlier to Danny Berger in Frankfurt, talking about the numbers uh, that we've had out of Deutsche. Let's talk a little bit more broadly about what the European banking season is revealing, what it tells us about where we're going, uh, and focus in on tomorrow's news as well. We get ECB tomorrow, but more crucially, from the banking sector point of view, uh, we also get the update from Credit Suisse on its plans going forward. Credit Suisse has kind of morphed into the new Deutsche Bank, as it were, the problem child uh, of European banking. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Banks Analyst, Alison Williams. Alison, let's, let's first of all start with kind of what we've learned thus far from the European bank reporting season and what the differences are between what we're seeing in Europe and what we're seeing over in the United States. The Europeans seem to be doing OK on trading, but where do the differences lie? So I think the one really um, strong common theme is that net interest income upside. Um, and do keep in mind that, you know, the rates are rising at different paces and different geographies. So that'll be interesting to see how things play out next year. But really, for these banks that have been suffering for low rates for a long time, and in Europe, uh, you know, the suffering has been a lot longer because in the U.S. we did have at least some period where, um you know, we got a boost. So net interest income, a broad help. Um, Europe really enjoying that for the first time in a, in a very long time. Mm -hmm. In the trading business, fixed income trading is really the highlight of the quarter, which is what we'd expected coming into the quarter, but it's also generally um, had some positive surprises. Um, for these two reasons, you're seeing, um, you know, Deutsche Bank sort of doing well, and that's not to discredit. You know, they've had this big restructuring plan. They've they've worked very hard at it, but, you know, when the environment helps you out, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, the environment didn't help them out, though, with leveraged loans. And I'm just wondering, we didn't see the same kind of um, leveraged loan losses in U.S. banks. Is that coming, or did the European guys just take the brunt? I think, you know, it depends, you know, first of all, on, on obviously the size of your book and what happens quarter to quarter. Um, you know, the and, you know, there's a great stat that Jamie Dimon uh, gave that, you know, the, 
when we think about the financial crisis and leveraged lending marks and how bad it was, you know, the business is sort of like a fifth. The bridge book business is, is about a fifth of what it was back then. So that sort of sizes the risk across the market. And then, um, you know, a lot of the U.S. banks talked about their pulling back. Um, you know, they talked about taking opportunity of some windows in the quarter to do some things. And so for those reasons, that might have helped the marks. I would also just say that it's a relatively more important business for Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse, um, you know, just in terms of it, it's something that um, is a relative strength of theirs versus, you know, high grade and, and such that U.S. banks excel at. So everyone's involved in everything, but I think that's another reason why you saw the mark at Deutsche Bank and you could see something at Credit Suisse tomorrow. Let's go on and talk about Credit Suisse in, in just a moment, a little bit more detail. Before we get um, to, to that, let's just have a, a quick conversation about more broadly how European banks going to react tomorrow if we get a change in policy at the ECB. Net interest margin, net interest income has really benefited as the ECB has shifted into more positive territory when it comes to rates. The, the, the Teltro system, the, the targeted long-term uh, refinancing operations that were put in place, very cheap loans, and now generating big returns for European banks. If that changes, how does it affect that, that net in income story? Well, I think in, in general, I mean, keep in mind, you know, why that was put in place. I do think, like, in general, um, you know, to the extent that the banking system and the economy is, is viewed healthy, that's a good thing. And I do think that, you know, further rate increases are still helpful at this point. You know, the question um, for Europe as well as the U.S. is obviously the underlying economic growth and if at some point that starts to turn against them because uh, the, the better interest rate story is a great one. It keeps getting better and better, but at some point it's going to you know, turn, turn the spigot off of potential lending um, and to the extent that you know, Europe uh, seem, seems to have relatively more risk to a recession, I think that is, is what bears watching because provisions are really, mm -hmm. I think, the wild card for next year, lost provisions. Great, Suisse. What are they going to say about their restructuring? What's going to be the thing that calms everyone down? So, um, you know, it's going to be tough for them because I think that, I mean, personally, I think what they need to do is just really focus on the long term and what their business should look like over the long term and, you know, work around that. Um, you know, the, the issues, obviously, are that, you know, it, it's tough for investors to be patient. Um, there's obviously concerns about capital. And if they're going to raise capital, that, that is something I feel that, you know, once you make that decision and broadcast to the market, if you don't do it right away, you just continually to put yourself into um, in a loop, right, because everyone knows that that's coming. Yeah. And it makes you sort of more vulnerable to market just in terms of, of the stock price. Um, and again, not making calls. We don't make stock calls, but just pointing out that those sort of the way the market looks at things. But um, the you know the other part of it is do they sell assets so they either do dilutive fundraising they sell assets um at low valuations um so it is tough because they're you know both of those things make you want to not raise you know reduce the amount of capital rate that you have to raise but you have to raise sort of enough um to fund the program for all the changes ahead and to um 
um, also fund legal costs. So I think the best case scenario that we could hear tomorrow is that they were able to get some external um, investors into the securitized product group that's a part of the investment bank. They want um, to get investors in. Um, I think that if they have to um, either sell the group outright at you know a less attractive valuation, it still makes sense for the bank long term because it's not really connected to their other businesses. Yep. Investment banking is connected. Asset management is connected. That particular unit has great returns over time, but it tends to do worse in more volatile times, and so that's not a great thing. Um, and, uh, you know, there's less rationalization that it's connected to the rest uh, of the Alison, business. why such a big range in terms of the potential that they may need to raise? Because the potential they need to raise really is all about what they do. So, you know, their capital is fine now, but, you know, if if you do a big program and you, you know, like their last pro- their last program, for example, was $2 billion, it cost them $2 billion restructuring to yield $3 billion. They actually exceeded their expectations there. Right. But the thing is that the costs come up front and the benefits come later. So to the extent that they're going to undertake all these measures to improve profitability, like let's just say like that's a reasonable expectation for them to do another something that saves them three billion that could get them to like a seventy percent cost ratio over time. It'll cost them two billion. Then on top of the, the from the legal standpoint, you know, that obviously there's a wide range, but if you're going to do this now, again, you should just have the cushion ready and not be worrying about coming back to market in a couple of years. So that costs, let's say that could be one to three billion. But then, you know, there, it's going to depend on what analysts plug into their model. Like, uh, like if they assume that uh, the securitized product unit is sold and you get nothing for it, right, and you're going to lose all these earnings. So that's how you start to get into all these variables. And mm-hmm. you've seen these, the estimates are basically four to nine billion. Um, you know, I saw a number in the yeah. FT, four billion is what they need to raise. Yep. And it really just depends on how fast they can get the cost savings, what are the costs up front, mm-hmm. um, because they have to just um, yeah. subsidize that with capital until they can get there. Yeah, that's a wide window. Four, nine billion, you know, I don't know. T- Take or leave, $5 billion. Um, Allison, thank you so much. Really appreciate Allison Williams uh, from Bloomberg Intelligence. But before that, we get tech earnings from Meta after the bell. We'll break that down for you. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So we were mentioning what's happening with tech. Uh, well off the lows. Microsoft, though, still disappointed. Google disappointed. Uh, that's definitely uh, through weakness in the ad sale market when it comes to Google. And then you got Meta Platforms reporting after the closing bell here in the U.S. The stock is down by about 3.7%. It has been a terrible terrible year uh, for the stock as well. So uh, let's get more um, preview here with Mandeep Singh, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst. Okay, Meta, what are you going to be looking for? What do we think is going to happen? Well, so the first thing is, uh, what are they going to do in terms of the top line miss? They already guided down about 5% uh, decline, including the currency impact. So uh, the expectations are low when it comes to uh, top line. But we fear they're going to miss even the lower expectations given the print we saw from Alphabet. The other big thing that everyone is focused on is what happens to free cash flow. And not just for 2023, but beyond, because 
look, this company was generating about $40 billion in free cash flow, and now it's around $20 billion. A lot of people think even $20 billion is not sustainable, given the headwinds they're facing from Apple's privacy changes and competition from TikTok and the investments in reality labs. And that is the part that's, I, I think, worrying investors, which is why you see that 60% multiple compression this year. Does Meta have an Apple problem? If so, why and how big? So uh, when it comes to Apple, they have already quantified the impact for this year. It's about $10 billion. And a lot of that is manifesting in the lower ad pricing. Now, that's not going to go away because Apple actually rolled out another change uh, yeah. this week where you have to pay for, you know, boosting the uh, feed on, on the app. And that applies for any sort of app. So if you have a feed and you are getting paid for boosting a particular feed because uh, advertisers want to pay for it, then you have to pay Apple a cut. Now that's going to hurt uh, Meta even more and and uh, its competitors. But remember, Meta is the largest player when it comes to direct response ads. And, and so that is why all these changes are having a disproportionate impact on Meta's business than others. Um, What are we going to hear about the metaverse. Look, I I think that a was a sigh. You you took a bit. You took a sigh. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, because uh, the definition of metaverse isn't clear to anyone. In fact, uh, I think Evan Spiegel was at a conference and he was saying, you know, his definition of metaverse is more around augmented reality. So far. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg was more focused on virtual reality. Now, he did mention at the Connect event that, you know, Meta is going to launch uh, augmented reality offerings. And we've been hearing more and more that Apple is going to come up with a mixed reality headset. So, really, it's not clear what Metaverse is. And, you know, the fact that Meta has spent so much, changed their name to Meta uh, around this, uh, you know, possible opportunity that no one knows how big it's going to be. Like with autonomous driving, you know uh, how big the market could turn out to be because mm -hmm. Tesla is embedding it in its product. In the case of, I think, uh, virtual reality or augmented reality, we just don't know how big the opportunity could be. Meta came into the beginning of the year, let's call it trading circa 350. It's now trading 123, 132, sorry, get my numbers the wrong way around. Um, that's a huge drop. How much of all of this bad news is priced now? If we get more bad news, kind of how big an effect do you think it could have? Yeah, so it's trading like it's a mature company. Uh, the terminal value and the growth rate is like, uh, you know, in line with GDP. No one expects them to really grow, you know, 20, 30% as they used to. And I go back to my point about free cash flow because if you think they can generate a $20 billion free cash flow every year, given where it's trading right now, that's a very healthy free cash flow yield, you know, a 5 to 6% in an environment where, yes, interest rates are rising but it's still much better than other tech companies have to offer. So you really have to pin it down to whether this company can grow again north of 20%, which they should be given advertising is cyclical. And we know, you know, uh, Alphabet Search is going to grow uh, those high uh, teens again, and YouTube is going to grow 25 30%. We're just not uh, that certain about Meta, given all that's transpiring around Apple's changes and the competition from TikTok. Who is a genuine Facebook competitor? Like if you're doing a compare valuations or something, 
Who'd it be? Snapchat, Pinterest. But but they're so small in comparison. They don't have like the grand big ideas. Like I just don't understand how you look relatively and value the company. Well, TikTok would be the closest competitor, and it's owned by, uh, they have a Chinese parent. But, uh, you know, one thing I uh, haven't mentioned is if there is a ban on TikTok in the U.S., that would be such a positive mm-hmm. catalyst for a meta. Ooh, and, yeah. and, and so I don't know if, uh, uh, you know, it's going to happen, but that is something uh, that could definitely uh, tilt it in favor of meta, at least for the near term, if that were to happen. Why can't they... WhatsApp is is ubiquitous in Europe. I know it's not in the United States, but but everybody uses WhatsApp here. Yet it doesn't seem to be monetized in any shape or form. Is that a massively missed opportunity? Well, I think there are a lot of internet uh, consumer internet assets that are like that, where you know they are heavily used. But I mean, Twitter is a prime example. Yep. Even though you know they're going private, it's heavily used. They have engagement, but it was never monetized properly. So WhatsApp, uh, mm-hmm. I, to my mind, you know, messaging has been hard to monetize to begin with. Even when you look at you know iMessage or what Snapchat has done with their visual messaging. They've never really found a way to show ads or, you know, uh, figure out a way to uh, drive e-commerce through messaging. Although Meta has been talking about it more and more in emerging markets. They Mm -hmm. just partnered with Reliance Geo and also a partnership in Brazil. They are trying to do that. But for a company with 120 billion revenue run rate, this is still a drop in the bucket if they're able to generate a billion uh, revenue from WhatsApp. So uh, it's the law of large numbers that's (laughs) going against Meta, and WhatsApp is too small to make a difference. Mindy, super appreciate it. I know it's going to be a busy afternoon for you. Thank you so much, Mindy Singh, joining us from Bloomberg Intelligence. That wraps it up for me and Guy. Hope you enjoyed the show. We will be with, well, I will be not here tomorrow, but Guy will be here with you tomorrow to for the ECB uh, and everything else as well. Have a great Wednesday, everyone. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg.